Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to follow along in a blue pew Bible uh, with us. You can find Luke 2 on page 858. And I just know and hope that you're as excited for uh, the word being preached as the kids are for those Rice Krispie treats downstairs. I know you are. I just, I know you are and appreciate that. But we're in the final week now of our series, Waiting Well. Waiting Well. And last but not least, we come to the story of a woman named Anna. And so we're going to jump right in, but just like Elizabeth and Simeon, who are two people we also saw in this series, the Gospel of Luke is the only one who mentions Anna. And there's three verses total about Anna. But I have to say that after studying this past week and preparing, I I found I want to be more like Anna. And uh, just her being a, a person and a woman whose life was marked with pain, but whose heart was filled with hope. And so my hope this morning is that you will see clearly by the end that your life is better off because the story of Anna has been preserved, has been preserved for us and and written and included in God's word. And so the passage that that we're going to come across this morning comes immediately after the verses that we dug into last week, uh, where a man named Simeon took a one-month-old baby Jesus into his arms in the temple in Jerusalem, glorified God for the blessing that he got to see the Messiah before he died, and then proclaimed that this baby will be a light for salvation for all people. And listening in to that declaration, along with Mary and Joseph, was this woman, Anna. And we're going to pick it up there. Luke 2, verse 36, and we're going to read to verse 38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna was waiting for the arrival of Jesus. And again, how she waited can be a powerful example for us if we're open to hear it. Um, For she was waiting for what we now know and consider the first coming of Jesus. And now the church today, 2,000 years later, are still waiting. And we are waiting for the second coming of Jesus. And while we are witnesses to his person and his work in ways that Anna obviously was not, in that we see revealed in his word what his life was like, what his ministry was like, and then how he went to die on a cross and be raised again. And for those who believe in Jesus, know that we have the presence of the Spirit in our lives, dwelling within us, that testifies to the power and truth of Jesus. While that is all true, it is also true that Jesus is not here right now. And in John chapter 14, verse 3, in the final uh, night before Jesus went to the cross, among other things, he said to his disciples, I am coming back. And so we wait. And we yearn to wait well and with purpose. And so the first thing to notice about Anna 
is how differently she is described by Luke compared to Simeon, who again we saw last week. Simeon, we know, uh, no biographical sketch on him. He was just a man. He was a man who was filled with the Spirit and who was waiting on God. On the other hand, now just a couple verses later, we learn Anna was a prophetess. We learn that she's the daughter of Phanuel, and she's from the tribe of Asher. And there's maybe several reasons why you could surmise why Luke did that, why such a contrast in just the span of a few verses. I personally think one reason that Luke did this is the fact that it would have been unusual for Jewish people from the tribe of Asher to be in Jerusalem. So little kind of overview of Old Testament history. Um, a thousand years prior to uh, the events when Luke chapter 1 and 2 were taking place, uh, there was a man named David who was king over Israel. Uh, the most successful king, maybe you could put, for Israel. Expanded their borders, unified their tribes, made Jerusalem the capital of the nation of Israel. He passed the throne to his son Solomon. And then, when Solomon died, there was a division in the family. There was tension amongst Solomon's sons as to who was going to take over the throne. And so, um, really, immediately after Solomon dies, there is now a split in Israel. The northern kingdom consists of the northern ten tribes, which included the tribe of Asher. They retained the name Israel. While the southern kingdom included the tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south, and they took the name Judah. So you had two, uh, two kingdoms within Israel, the northern kingdom, Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah. And the capital of Judah was still Jerusalem. And these kingdoms remained divided. They were enemies at times. And in 722 B.C., so a couple hundred later, uh, years later after the split, the northern kingdom was taken into exile by the Assyrians, driven out of their own land. And the southern kingdom, Judah, they hung on a little bit longer. But sure enough, in due time, in 586 B.C., they too fell to now the Babylonians and taken into exile. And the return from exile that's described in Scripture in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra is really the return of the southern kingdom from Babylon back to their capital in Jerusalem. But historically, it is believed that only a few scattered people from the northern kingdom ever really returned from exile. At least there's no biblical account of a formal return of the northern kingdom. Not at the scale that it was for Judah. So either way, that's a little bit of a longer way to say simply this. Someone from a northern tribe of Asher in the temple in Jerusalem was unusual. It was worth noting, which is why I think Luke included that in his gospel. That her very presence, the very presence of this woman, daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher, was evidence of God's faithfulness of God's faithfulness to his promises and his covenant to have this remnant of believers that, that she, again, just in her existence, was a living emblem to God's faithfulness. And then from there, I want to show us three ways that Anna can be an example for us today. Starting with number one, Anna was waiting well as protest. Anna was waiting well as, as, as a protest. So what do I mean by that? Um, well, I, I think Luke is very clear in that he wants you to know something about Anna's life. Anna had a hard life. She was living a hard life. She married young. She was married for seven years, but then her husband died. And she has been a widow now until the age of 84. 
Some of you might know that there's actually a translation question in verse 37, uh, whether the original text says that she was a widow until 84 or she has been a widow for 84 years. And if you do the math on that, that if it's the second that she's been a widow for 84 years, now Anna is either pushing 100 or probably over even the age of 100. All right, Luke has a very calculated way of explaining this. He just says simply, she was advanced in years. And the vast majority of her life has been spent as a widow. Um, widows are mentioned directly 80 times in the Bible, 8-0, throughout the scripture. And one of the reasons why they are talked about so often is because the people of God ought to be marked by a care for the widow because, simply put, the widow was not cared for in society. They lacked financial power. They lacked cultural power. They were voiceless. They were often penniless. And therefore, they were often taken advantage of for their vulnerability. Because it's true then, what's also true now, that unfortunately we see uh, before our eyes, that when a society or a people turn away from God, it is the marginalized who suffer first, is the marginalized who suffer most. And in biblical times, widows were often at the top of the list. So Anna had a hard life, but she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So those two things should not go together. Long, hard life with a lot of suffering and yet a relentless pursuit of the Lord in worship. That is only possible. You can only put those things together if the power of God is in you. And the power of God was in Anna. And the promises of God were clung to by Anna. Her life was marked with pain, but her heart was filled with hope. And that hope made her an overcomer. That's what I mean when I say waiting well as protest. I mean waiting well on God in the midst of suffering as a protest against the fallen world. Let me say that again. Waiting well on God in the midst of suffering as a protest against a fallen world, that that makes you an overcomer. Um, so what are the kind of the things that Anna overcame in her life? I want to offer three. Three things that Anna overcame at this point in her life, starting with first, she overcame grief. Overcoming grief. Her husband died young. She was young. There's no mention in the text whether they had any children before he died. Either way, the grief of losing a spouse at any point in your life is deep. I imagine the grief of losing a spouse young is deeper still. And so Anna grieved. And here's the thing. God created Anna to grieve. And God creates us to grieve. And as the people of God who are often, even sometimes the more you're in church, the more you're following Christ, the more you need to be reminded that grieving is not antithetical to the heart of God. We saw this in our Joel series throughout the fall, that God calls us to lament. He doesn't just allow lament. He calls us to lament in a fallen world. He calls us to pray in pain and bring our pain to him. Grief is not foreign to the heart of a believer. Never feel guilty for grief. Jesus himself grieved deeply throughout the Gospels. Uh, hundreds of years before he was born, the, the prophet Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah. And you remember how he described him? A man of sorrows. 
grieving the loss of life, especially a death in your family, I think it's fair to say is the pinnacle of grief in this world. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, he, he wrote a book later in his life called A Grief Observed, short little book, A Grief Observed, and he wrote it after his wife died, and he actually decided to write it under another name because he didn't want people to think he had lost his faith after they read the book because that's how raw he talks about grief. And I want to give one quote from the book that shows just some of the the real raw picture that he displays. He says, No one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I am not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep on swallowing. You know, the Christmas season is, uh, for many, uh, a peak of joy. It's like your most joyful part of the year. Like, we're, we're, we're in it now. Like, we're Christmas week. Let's go. And you just know you anticipate this, and there's a joy here. But it's also true that this very week will be the peak of grief for many in their year. It doesn't cancel the joy, but it comes alongside it. The grief of memories of loved ones lost. And so when I say Anna overcame grief, I don't mean grief is bad. I don't mean that grief ever really goes away. But rather that her grief did not prevent her from worshiping God relentlessly. That in due time, the Lord in his kindness worked in Anna's life, brought healing to her. And her sadness and her waves of sadness did not prevent her sight of God. It actually sharpened it. Anna overcame grief. Secondly, waiting well as protest, she overcame bitterness. And so these kind of go together, that when grief goes unchecked in our lives, when grief is not brought before the Lord, it can lead to a crippling bitterness in us. It's the moments when grief really just turns into a set of questions, like, like to, to the Lord, like, why did you let this happen to me? Why does this have to be my story? Why is this not other people's story? She's always in the temple, so she sees other families bringing their children into the temple, full families, happy, joyful for their blessing. Why do their families get to stay intact? Why is everyone else living the life that I wanted to live, that I prayed for? When bitterness takes over, it shapes us. It kind of molds us, and then from that point on, no matter what happens or doesn't happen moving forward, there's a, there's a hardening of our emotions that prevent any kinds of satisfaction or really any feeling altogether, that bitterness prevents you from lamenting well. Bitterness prevents you from waiting well, and it even can keep you from rejoicing well. And you become a prisoner to your own resentment. And whether it's grief due to a loss like Anna, um, or there can be grief for other reasons too, grief of being uh, a victim to some injustice, whether uh, recently, currently, or maybe long ago in the past in your family life and home life, that there's a grief that turned to bitterness over time. Or that you could resonate with the fact that I'm, I'm not living the life that I envisioned for myself. 
or there's someone that you are refusing to grant forgiveness to because they don't deserve it. They haven't even apologized. How can you even consider granting forgiveness to someone? And so bitterness is an attempt to self-protect. That's what we're doing. We think we are protecting ourselves by remaining bitter, but we find out in the end that in reality, we're just destroying ourselves from the inside out. Uh, Put it this way, bitterness is a weed Bitterness is a weed that threatens to grow out of control and overcome our lives for any multitude of reasons. And I am convinced that Satan loves nothing more than a bitter child of God. That if you are saved by Christ and kept by Christ, the best he can do is just to make you as bitter as possible while you live this life. Because he knows it will rob your joy that you are called to walk in and live with. He knows that will rob your witness to anybody who's looking on. And the promises of God are the pesticide that kills the root of bitterness. The promises of God are the pesticide that kill the root of bitterness. So I I recall my mom um, teaching me how to weed when I was younger. Uh, So I'm the youngest of four boys, and so uh, they taught us yard work early and often. And maybe because I was the youngest, I got the weeding job, all right? That was supposed to be the easy job. Um, Well, as a young boy, and maybe now, my tendency is just to see the weed, pull the weed, just pull whatever you can see, right from the surface. And my mom would be like, no, 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 no. You got to go underground to get that weed. You go underground and you make sure the root comes up with that weed. Otherwise, you rip it off now, it's just going to be back next week. And the promises of God are the only thing that will go underground. They're the only thing that will get to the root of bitterness in our lives. Promises like he will never leave us nor forsake us. Promises that he will be faithful to end what he began in us. That there is purpose in all of our pain. That he works all things together for good. And the hundreds and hundreds of others in the word of God, the promises of God go beyond what can be seen. And Anna overcame bitterness in her life because she lived not by what she saw, she lived by what God said. She lived not by what she saw. She lived by what God said. And this walking by faith and not by sight is waiting well as a protest. And then third, third thing Anna overcame is loneliness. Loneliness. I'm not just talking about the loneliness in her life without uh, a spouse, maybe perhaps without children or family, although I imagine that she likely dealt with spouts of loneliness to that extent as well. But I'm also talking about, maybe especially talking about, a loneliness as one who had strong faith in a time when the nation of Israel was shrouded in darkness. Uh, Let us not forget that the events of chapter 1 and 2 in the the Gospel of Luke, uh, as they were taking place, it had been 400 years since Israel had heard from God. And I know most of you know that, that in between the Old Testament and New Testament, there was a span of 400 years where there was no prophet, but just let that sink in for a moment. They had drifted far from his promises. They were not living by his commands and his rule and reign. They had replaced a faith in God with a faith in their own religious practices. You know, it's the kind of thing where they use the word to bully others, They did not live by the word to love others. And under the circumstances, 
Honestly, it would have been surprising for Anna to make it 84 hours with worshiping and fasting night and day, let alone 84 days, let alone 84 years. How alone do you think she felt in that? Um, Loneliness in and of itself is something that can impact our relationship with God. I, I feel like every other month there's a new study that comes out that is kind of warning our society as a whole of the danger of loneliness and the rise of loneliness. And the pandemic didn't start it, but it certainly was a catalyst for it. Um, the Financial Times published an article the day before Thanksgiving. And this was the title, article in the Financial Times. Are we ready for the approaching loneliness epidemic? And within the article, they shared some uh, statistics, how this spans all generations. It said that 53% of people 65 and older spend more than eight hours of waking time a day alone. And that is far higher than it was even 15 years ago. It went on to share that young adults, so ages 16 to 29, are spending, on average, a full hour a day more alone than they did 10 years ago. 16 to 29 are spending a full hour, on average, a day alone than people of their same age group was doing 10 years ago. In the UK, 40% of women aged 16 to 29 reported a struggle with loneliness. 40%. That's up from 22% in 2007. These are astronomical increases over a relatively short period of time. Men asked the same question. 22% of men talked about struggling with loneliness. That's up from 13% in 2007. And what the article goes on, again, not a Christian article at all, but it goes on to share that why this is a problem and will continue to be a problem is that loneliness increases the risk of harmful behavior. Um, Addictions that start or worsen. Uh, depression, thoughts of self-harm, paranoia, all rise with the feelings of loneliness. Uh, I read a book in 2020 at the peak of the pandemic called Finding God in My Loneliness. It was written by a woman named Lydia Brownback, and I have a quote from her up on the screen. She says this in her book. She says, single or married, young or old, man or woman. Everyone experiences loneliness at various times to varying degrees. No one is exempt. We were created for togetherness, which is why, even before the fall, God declared that man's aloneness was not good. You know, we often, and I often talk about, you know, God creating Eve and how that's an element of marriage and God created marriage, and that's true. But I actually think that God creating Eve was less about marriage and more about community. That God did not create us to be alone. So Anna overcame relational loneliness in her waiting. But again, she also overcame spiritual loneliness. Anna knew what it was like to feel like you're the only one pursuing God in your life. You're the only one following God in a time and place when it seems like nobody else is around you. Again, some of you know what this feels like. Perhaps you're the only believer in your family. I know some of you are the only believer in your family. Or your family are the only believers in your extended family, and you tend to be reminded of that even more so around this time of year. Maybe it seems like you're the only one in your class or your grade that follows God, and you're going to school or you're going to class or you're on campus and you're walking around, you're like, no one cares about God. 
No, and every day you're just kind of reminded that you're just a little bit different. Perhaps you've been working at the same company for years, living in the same neighborhood for years, and you struggle to locate a single other believer around you. And above all else, you would say and admit that following Christ reminds you that you're alone. And you're wondering, how long can you keep up? And you're worn down day after day of being in this environment that is shrouded in darkness, and you're struggling to be a light. Brothers and sisters, what an inspiration the picture of Anna can be for you. That her hope in Christ is overcoming her loneliness. That her steadfast worship of God and, 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 and her commitment can remind you that your commitment, not only to the Lord, but to a community of faith, to a community of God, is what God can and will use you to sustain you in the times and the fields of loneliness. That when we say, on Sundays we gather, Part of the reason why we emphasize gathering is because we need this week in, week out reminder when I look around and go, I'm not alone in this. I'm pursuing Christ with others in this. And so I am strong enough to now persevere and to go back into where God has called me, back into my mission field and know I am not alone in this. You can do this because God is empowering you and he supplies you with what you need. And this is waiting as protest against a fallen world. The kind of waiting that overcomes grief, bitterness, and loneliness to the glory of God. All right, let's keep going. Waiting well as protest is number one. Second thing we can learn from Anna. Number two, responding with gratitude. Responding with gratitude. So after a lifetime of waiting well and walking by faith and not by sight, how did Anna respond to seeing this baby in the temple being held by this man named Simeon who's declaring who he is and what he has come to do? Verse 38, again, if your Bible's still open. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Um, if you have been with us, or if, you, or if you've heard all the sermons of this series, Waiting Well in Advent, you know that this is the fourth time in the text, and the fourth time that I am highlighting in the text of this correlation between waiting well and a life of gratitude. If it didn't stick in week one in Psalm 40 with King David, who knew that gratitude for past deliverance was vital for future hope, maybe it stuck in week two in Luke chapter one with Elizabeth modeling for us that gratitude is chosen before it is felt, whether in your suffering or in your blessing. But if it didn't stick then, maybe it stuck in week three in Luke chapter two with Simeon giving all the glory to God before all things in response to seeing the Messiah for the first time. But if it did not stick then, Here's our last chance. Maybe it'll stick now in week four with Anna giving thanks to God for the arrival of the light that pierces the darkness, a darkness that she personally felt her entire life. Waiting well is marked primarily, even foundationally, by our gratitude in all circumstances. Like, praise God, honestly, praise God both then and now for aging brothers and sisters in Christ, for those, as Luke says, who are advanced in years, who are experts on giving thanks. Like, what a testimony. What a gift to the rest of us. Like, like show me a believer who is elderly and yet who is known for her or his gratitude 
And I will show you a cloud of witnesses all around them of generations that are being built up in the faith and they don't even realize it. I'll show you a world who cannot understand how someone can possibly be that thankful. And that peace in their soul amidst of the world in chaos. Um, there's a pastor, A.W. Tozer, who said this, and, and, and uh, Anna reminds me of this quote. He says, quote, go to church once a week and nobody pays attention. Worship God seven days a week and you become strange. Who amongst us is willing to live a life of worship in all things and is willing to be strange for the sake of Christ? Go to church once a week, check the box, no one will notice or care. You live a life marked by worship in all areas, makes you strange. The kind of strangeness that will build up others in the faith who are watching you, the kind of strangeness that will make a world notice. So yeah, I want to be like Anna. I want to wait well as a protest, and I want to respond in worshipful gratitude for God's faithfulness. And then now we got one left. Third way, Anna. And these three verses can be a model for us. Or number three, she was living on mission. Anna was living on mission. She believed God and clung to his promises. She worshiped God and gave gratitude in all things. And now she speaks about God to all who would listen. She decided, you could say, to go tell it on the mountain. A very familiar Christmas song that I believe we're slated to sing this Saturday at our Christmas Eve services. So a little teaser for you. That song was published in 1907. Do you know the story behind it? It was published in 1907. But the lyrics trace back to the 1850s and oral tradition kept them alive because it was sung originally as an African-American spiritual by slaves who worshipped as protest. And in their gatherings, outside the gaze of their slaveholders, they worshipped. They, like Anna, lived lives marked with pain, but had hearts full of hope. And now when I sing this song or hear this song or read its lyrics, I get a new kind of lump in my throat when I know this history behind it. Down in a lowly manger, our humble Christ was born and brought us all salvation. That blessed Christmas morn, go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere, go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Anna can't be anyone's savior, but she could point people to the savior, to those who are waiting for redemption So friends, if you've been maybe in and around churches a lot in your life growing up, maybe not so much recently, but maybe you've heard enough Christmas messages to the point where you have a vague sense of Jesus. You have a vague sense of Christmas and what it means that Jesus came and was born to bring hope, to, to, to bring a better life, to, to help you in this life. 
sometimes that vague familiarity can cloud what ought to be clear. And so I want to be clear this morning. That Jesus, the eternal Son, was sent by the Father out of his love and his grace to bring you not just a better life, but a new life. Not a better life, but a new life. And he proved this love for us in that while we were still sinners, he was born as one of us so that he can die for us. So that whoever repents of their sin and believes in him shall receive forgiveness and redemption by faith. Anna saw that this baby being born was a declaration of war. It was a declaration of war against sin and death. And so now her active waiting and fasting and in prayer turns into active sharing to proclaim him who came to redeem, to seek and save the lost, to release the prisoner free from the bondage of their own flesh and sin. And For those who do believe, who know that clear um, confession of faith in Jesus, what a calling on our lives to commit commit ourselves to, to make Christ known. Like of all you can accomplish in this world, and you can accomplish a lot in this world, but nothing will fill you with more joy, nothing will have more eternal purpose than proclaiming the light of a world to a world that is in darkness. To proclaim it with your life and the way you live and the way you prioritize the least of these. Yes and amen. But also to proclaim it with your words. Anna is age 84. Maybe. She might be older. And she is boldly proclaiming. And she's seen enough of her life to know what matters most. And she does not want to waste any more opportunities while there's still time. You know, maybe it's similar for you, but it's my general observation that as believers get older, as they get advanced in years, they naturally get more bold in sharing the gospel with other people. And there could be several reasons for that. I can't help but think that, for one, they're not as trapped by their own fear that those of us who are younger often are. So worried about what other people are going to think about them. I think they're also increasingly aware of their own mortality, that they got limited time left. And so they speak. And so if I could say a word to the youth in the room this morning, those who are in middle school or high school, college, young adult even, I I understand that you're generally not thinking about your own mortality, nor do you necessarily need to. I know you have a youthful energy with your whole life ahead of you that includes dreams and aspirations, as you should. But can I implore you this morning to choose Christ while you're young. Choose him while you're young. And cling to him. And treasure him above all else because you have a, by God's grace and Lord willing, a long runway ahead of you of being able to make Christ known. And you probably hear a lot of people talk about, maybe in your own home even, maybe uh, in the news and the headlines, of of how crazy of a place this world is right now and where are things going to be in 20 and 30 years. And I I don't even want to see the United States when you grow up. Maybe you hear some of that language, and maybe there's some truth to it. Maybe there are some scary times ahead. But my goodness, especially in the Northeast, 
what an opportunity you have before you. To be a light for the sake of Christ in an increasingly dark world. Choose him now. Be strengthened in him now and see what God will do through you. It's there if you want it, honestly. And I realize that most won't. Most won't embrace it, but will you? Will you? As we approach not only Christmas week, but after that, a new year, if I were to ask everybody in the room to raise your hand, if you wanted to grow in your courage and ability to proclaim Christ where you are, my guess, most if not every hand, would be in the air. For some of you, you have a burning desire to share Christ, but you need training, and you don't know what that looks like, and you need to be equipped on what that looks like in your mission field where God has placed you. For others, you've gotten the training, and you do know what it looks like, but you've long lost the desire. And all of us, no matter which of those places we'd find ourselves or somewhere in between, we all need the courage. And so how many of us at Grace Church will have a vision along with me that 2023 will be the year where you experience a breakthrough finally? A breakthrough against the strongholds that have kept you down from proclaiming Christ for too long. The layered fears, the busyness and nonstop world we live in, the status that we seek to get in this world. Who's willing to break through the strongholds this next year. There's no one way to proclaim Christ. There's no one personality you need to have, but there is one person that we proclaim, and his name is Jesus Christ. And let me give you an easier proposal for this weekend, Christmas week. How many of you would accept the challenge to text three people this week? Text three people in your phone and invite them to a Christmas Eve service. We can't fit them if they all come, all right? We'll figure that out if, uh, when the time comes. But give us that good problem to have. Who are three people that an invite showing a care for them? You know, inviting somebody to church, it's not the only way to proclaim Christ. It's actually not the primary way to pr- proclaim Christ, but it, it can include it. And similarly, Christmas Eve is not the only time you can invite somebody to church. But it's a pretty good one. Who are three people that you know the fears you might need to overcome in your own heart to say, hey, I'd love for you to join at Christmas Eve. Even if you're about to head out of town, you can still tell them to come. I'd love to follow up with you after if you go. On this final Sunday of Advent, I want to be like Anna. A woman whose life was marked with pain but her heart was filled with hope. Because I have a sneaking feeling, if we look more like Anna, we're going to look more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do yearn for you to come, Lord, especially this week as we head towards Christmas weekend. We anticipate your arrival. And with all the joy and hope and desire in our hearts to see that happen. But Father, we are desperate for you. We are desperate for the courage that only you can provide. We thank you for the models of faithfulness you've placed in our life. We thank you for the models of faithfulness like Anna that you have placed in your word. And we thank you that these three verses are in there. And I pray, Lord, that we too would wait well as protest in this fallen world. 
I pray that we too would respond in gratitude in all circumstances. And Father, I pray that Grace Church would live on mission and that we would proclaim your name in the ways that you have equipped and empowered us to do so. Let it be all for your glory, Lord. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's now stand together. You know, we began this Advent season week one by closing with, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And now we conclude our fourth Sunday of Advent singing the same in this hopeful anticipation of what is to come. Join with us.